Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and I'm your host. The previous episodes explored Peter Block's six conversations, including invitation, possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts. For this series of episodes, because this approach can sometimes feel vague without a specific context, we decided to speak with practitioners who are using these conversations out in the world. Today, Brad Wise and Joey Taylor speak with Megan Scott and her practice partner, Courtney Ng. My name is Megan Scott. I'm the founder CEO of Wayfinding Partners. I'm based out of Washington, D.C. Wayfinding is a social justice and transformation consultancy. We work with nonprofit organizations and leaders and communities who aspire to equity, justice, and liberation. We talk about facilitation, necessary conditions, and how to connect with the desire of others in the creation of containers of belonging. Here's Megan talking about the vagueness within the conversations. I think that one of the reasons why it's so difficult to explain it when you are outside of the circle with Peter Block and when you don't have the book right in front of you is because it's so very fundamental and because it's so very visceral and emotional that it's a difficult concept to sort of grab onto. It's difficult to latch onto because there aren't action steps right? Like if you think about some of the other change models, like there are action steps that you can follow. For Peter Block, it's all about framing. It's all about how are you thinking about people in the world? How are you thinking about community? Which is why like you get the thought explosion. That's why it's like, oh my God, this is such a new and exciting way of thinking about how people can be in relationship with each other, but there's nothing else like it. There are no steps to doing it. You have to embody it. You have to become this practitioner, this approach to bringing people into community. And a lot of times when you try to describe it to people, they look like you have five heads, right? Because you're like, wait, so there's an invitation. What does that even mean? Or what am I supposed to do with these questions? How does this get me to a better place of change? And I think that people often take for granted that it's the it's the container, it's the context that we invite people into that actually is creating the conditions for change. And folks aren't really used to thinking about like the conditions that we're creating and what that can facilitate. They're really focused on the, the how do we get from A to B to C to D. It's abstract, which is what makes it hard for folks to grasp onto but you feel it like, you know, it when you see it, like when you're in a space with Peter and the way that he opens up communication, the way that he uses silence, the way that he probes super deep in a way that like makes you cry in 10 seconds. I don't know how he manages to do that, but he always finds the right question is powerful. It's ineffable. And so I think that For Peter, he's just so, it's just so effortlessly him. It's the way that he thinks about the world. It's the way that he thinks about people. It's a mindset, his way of being. It's like trying to describe personality to a five-year-old. The concepts just aren't really there. I love the conditions and container piece. That's a really interesting thing to, to follow for a second. But can I get a little context for what your exposure to Peter was? I did the MSOD program at Pepperdine 
8 million years ago. And that was the first session where I was like, oh, okay, I understand how organization development, how I can do it. Because, you know, at Pepperdine, the program is in the business school. I work in social change and philanthropy and nonprofits. And so the business school aspect just wasn't really tugging at me. Like it just wasn't really relevant. But by the time we got to Peter's work and community, belonging, dialogue, conversation, person and relationship development, I was like, all right, I can see how this is related to me. This I can do. Like I can be this type of OD practitioner and I can see the power in it. It's movement building in a way that is very aligned with how I think about the world. So Courtney and I are designing cohort programs, which are really invited spaces where people are coming together. We're building different communities for a thing. Like it's not very clear what's the ultimate outcome, right? We have entry points for people. So one of our our cohorts is called Rest as Resistance. And it's really focusing on how folks of color, Black folks in particular, are conditioned to always be doing. Doing equates to self-worth. Doing equates to your permission to be on the planet. And so Rest as Resistance is trying to create a space of unlearning for that. The way that I see Peter Block's work showing up in that is creating the invitation and asking people to hold critical questions in mind and having change happen through dialogue. It's completely dialogic. Talk a little bit about how you create the conditions and container within that context, maybe, or if there's another one that feels more relevant, feel free to take it that way. So we offer starting places for containers. We start with norms. We start with ways of being. We find that thinking about ways of being is a little bit more inviting than talking about ground rules. Like ground rules put boundaries on people that aren't very generative. What we want is for folks to have a mindset, have a code of behavior that invites possibility. So that's part of the way that we create the container. So some of the, Courtney, you can remind me, some of the things in our ways of being are when things get tough, turn to wonder, turn to curiosity. It's a different way of saying, don't be judgmental. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, here's a way of being that's different than what you might find in regular life. One of the things that Peter Block talks about a lot is how we need to think about communities from an asset-based perspective and what the gifts are rather than the deficiencies. And so, When things are tough and you turn to wonder, you're moving from problem to possibility, which is a really big Peter Block-ism, moving from problem to to possibility. So when things are tough, turn to wonder is a way that we try to condition people to unlearn things. Accepting non-closure and expecting unfinished business is another way that we try to get people out of Western mindset conditioning where everything needs to be wrapped up in a cute little bow. And then we have folks set up intentions for the work that we're about to do together. I think having that sort of collective seeing about what what is this group of people here to do? What are the unique gifts that are in this room? The hopes, the commitments that people want to make as part of the way of creating container. 
The other thing that we sometimes say to folks, we don't say this all the time, Courtney, we should probably say this more often, but that everyone has ownership over the experience. So you get out what you put in. So there's a piece of ownership around that. You talked about how the work that Peter does is ineffable. Mm -hmm. And I see you're a Reiki practitioner and it seems like you kind of lean into some of that ineffability in in the work that you do. That's been my experience. Sometimes I go into a room and I'm like, I'm not ready for this at all. And yeah. then something happens and you're like, what was that? How did that happen? Yeah. What, what emerged there? You can't force it. You can't conjure it really. It's something beyond you, it feels like. Yeah. One of our value sets is emergence and magic because there's a quality of this work that's transformational which means that you haven't seen it yet. You can only imagine it. And school nowadays doesn't, they don't really want you to imagine things. I was talking, my husband's a teacher. And so this topic gets him fired up a lot about how schools don't teach you to imagine. But the work of community building, the work that we do in liberation and justice is transformative, which means that it invites creativity, which means you have to lean into the element of the unknown and be willing to be surprised, be willing to be disappointed, be willing to experience intense joy and deep heartache. So there's, there's magic and transformation. And the reason why you can't manufacture it is because it's so organic. It's about recognizing the gifts in the space, recognizing that this group of people are here to do a specific thing and that you only have to tap into it. You can't always draw it out. Sometimes you just have to wait and see what emerges. That's why I like meetings with no agendas because the right people are in the room, something interesting is going to happen if we just kind of give it the space to do what it needs to do. And it's difficult to manufacture magic. We have this group of people that are interested in these topics together, but wanting to do something to like have Mm -hmm. some sort of action. And do you think that needs to have a local impact? Could it be bigger than that? Could you, do you think you can have true belonging and have a community impact if that group of people are scattered about the country, but they're just wrestling with these concepts together. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of weeks ago, we did an event in partnership with this organization called Thought Partnerships. It was a global event. We had people in different continents and it was around the rest as resistance concept. And that was a magical conversation. People got a lot of restoration out of it because some of the principles of belonging are, I don't always say that things are universal. It's very rare for me to say that, but some of the innate psychological, energetic, emotional needs of belonging are pervasive. They are pervasive. Humans long for belonging to something. It's in the word that is totally possible to build a community across different spaces, across different time zones the context changes the conversation a little bit. So what dissent looks like in the U.S. is not going to be the same as what dissent looks like in Afghanistan. But the concept of dissent is still there. The concept of choice is relevant and important. It probably even makes the conversation that much richer. The fact that the way that I think about choice is going to be different than the way that 
someone in Ireland is going to think about choice. I think that it would be a really beautiful thing to have a community that's that's not just local and necessary in some ways. I think that local communities are important. That's where change happens most intensely. But I think that we're at a moment in human history where we need to do a lot more across the globe and we have the technology to do it. So why not try? I liked what you said. You just said like when you have that sense of community locally, it happens faster. I think you said like impact happens faster. The impact, it can be more visceral because it's more tangible. You can see things changing. You can see the way that being in community is changing the world around you. It's harder unless you're thinking super expansively to see impact when you're dispersed across the globe. You have to really believe that energy moves and energy will change something. You have to really believe in connectivity on a more spiritual plane. It's kind of like 80-20, like 80% of it is like just getting people in the room. And then 20% of it is just faith and belief in like some divine thing is going to happen. But you have to think expansively for it to feel as visceral as being in a physical local space. The thing that I'm always trying to overcome is the vagueness implicit in the invitation around this work. How can we actually invite people into the work with a compelling enough invitation that they'll say yes, but still leave room for the space to be co-created and emergent and all that stuff? Because very often when we, we issued invitation, people are like, but what the heck are we going to do though? Like, what's the process like? And so how are you able to spark enough curiosity to get the yes for people to be in the room, but still maintain the openness or the vagueness necessary for that work to happen? Yeah. You help people draw out what they're currently dissatisfied with and then help them describe what they long for. It's helping people see it's less about what are we going to do and more of like, Who do we want to be and why? And what do we think that might shift? So like when we're doing strategic planning, for example, strategic planning often is like, all right, here's what we want to do in response to what's happening in the world around us. That's great. You'll end this engagement with a wonderful strategic plan. It'll have steps. It'll have like metrics and shit like that. But what is most important to us are the ways in which you are entering a strategic planning process. What are your questions? How are you thinking about your purpose in the world? Who are you? Who do you want to be? When you think about your work, I have a friend who identifies as Indigenous, and she's always talking about how we need to make decisions with seven generations in mind. What is the impact that you want to have seven generations from now? Changes the conversation completely, you know, other than thinking about where do we want to be in three to five years. So it's helping people identify the fact that they're not satisfied with the way the world is right now. What do you long for? And do you want a space to play? Like there's almost an invitation for playing in a way that can get us to the place that we long for. There's the sell of the way that we've been doing things hasn't been working. Otherwise, shit would have changed by now. I find that that is a useful tactic in business development meetings where it's like, you're dissatisfied with how things have been done before because you're still in the same place. 
would you like to try something completely different? Some people say yes. And some people say, no, that's too scary. I like to move with the body of the willing. I'm at a point in my life where I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to convince people that they want to be free, trying to convince people that liberation is the direction that you need to go in. I don't have a whole lot of time for that anymore. There are people who do. So I send them to the, here are the people who still need to be convinced XYZ person. This is where you like to live right now. I like to move with the body of the willing. And I find that a lot of people are just ready right now. People are just ready to be different, to, to experience something different. People are tired. People are worn down and they need permission to be different. They need reminding Peter block would say they need reminding that they can give themselves permission to be different while they are being reminded that they can give their themselves permission we give them permission and it's so freeing. When I started this work, I used to say, you know, do you want to be well? And sort of that is the entry point to good organization development work. Do you want to be well? Do you want your organization to be well? And now I think my question for folks is more like, do you want to be free? <laughs> do you want to experience true liberation? And I'll see what that shifts in conversation. Do you want to experience true liberation? As we listen to a poem by David White, I'd like to invite you to take a breath. Consider what's preventing you from saying yes to true liberation. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you're not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Deep breath in and out. As we return, Brad asked Megan and Courtney a question. When you talk, the way I feel is very similar to when I hear Peter talk. But what it makes me feel like, I'm trying to think of like what's a metaphor that I could use. It's almost like waking up from a dream where you had this amazing experience running through the woods with all of your friends and you felt totally free and exactly what life is supposed to be like. But then you wake up back in the normal world and you're just like, I know that was real, but I don't know how to get back there. But I know I want to create something that helps me and my friends get there. But I feel like I'm just mostly walking around the real world, kind of sort of remembering those dream woods experiences you know what I mean yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what to do with it focus on it focus on it what you pay attention to grows try to wherever you are look at the mundane with as much awe as possible put your mind in a a place of profound gratitude put your mind and your your thoughts and your your speech in a place of just permanent wonder and awe like think about like how kids look at 
cardboard boxes. <laughs> they can do anything with a cardboard box. It's, it's ridiculous. Be like that kid. The more that you change that in you, the more you are generating energy around you that allows people to change that about themselves. You get to be the place of magic and people will experience you differently. But I totally understand, like there was this euphoric feeling and I just want to get back to it. And the world is beating me down. Um, <laughs> and the man is out to get me. So it's a practice. It's a practice to focus on abundance. It's a practice to be in a state of gratitude. It's a practice to find meaning and pain. And then you're inviting people to practice it with you. Courtney is my practice partner in crime, or it's like we both want to be in the world differently. And so we cry together, we are joyful together, and we try to be different so that wayfinding can be different so that our clients can be different so that we can have different conversations so that we can move people closer to longing for freedom, longing for liberation, and then willing to experiment to get there. Courtney, is there anything coming up for you right now as you've been listening for the last little bit? I was actually thinking about Brad's dream and what I noticed in that. And just, I don't know why I imagined that you and your friends were children in it, um, but there was something childlike about the way you described it. And often Megan will mention that when she's talking about this, about what was the most joyous memory that you have as a child, which isn't always easy for everyone, depending on what your childhood was like often think about, and when Megan's talking, I feel similarly, Brad, that like there's a kind of energy that comes about and I just get excited. But I, I often think about like, where did I learn all of these things about how to be that have been so hurtful and damaging? Prime example was just coming off of an illness and fighting with myself nonstop about I should be in this meeting. I should be doing this thing, knowing that like that's not immediately being put upon me by Megan or anybody at Wayfinding Partners, but there's a learnedness to disconnect, a learning uh, that I have to disconnect from what's happening and to just be useful. What, what's been coming up for me is the deep appreciation I have for the space that Megan has worked so hard to create. And she has, through the work I've done with Wayfinding, introduced me a lot of Peter Block's work. And I've really enjoyed seeing all of the kind of inspiration coming from there and to be able to build upon it with her is just it's such an adventure I think it's hard for people to live in the world without authority and I think this goes to some of the conditioning that Courtney's talking about and if you are in a space of liberation in a space of freedom you're accountable to it and that's kind of scary. The point of doing it in community is so that you can build mutual accountability. But it's scary to be responsible for your own liberation. That's why it's in our employee handbook that people must take 14 days off in addition to like the several weeks that we close throughout the year because we're in a moment where we need to have authority to tell us to do these things. It's scary to think that, oh, I'm choosing to be unwell. Well, that sucks. How can I do this differently? That's a hard thing to confront. And it's scary to think of yourself as ultimately responsible for what's happening 
in your spirit. And of course, like Courtney was saying, there are so many things that are also happening. Like abuse can be happening. War can be happening. I think a lot about Viktor Frankl, who's the Holocaust survivor between stimulus and response. There's space. But, you know, there is so much choice, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of terrible and awful things. I sometimes view my job, especially when I'm coaching women of color, Black women specifically, I feel like it's my job to increase people's capacity to see their own agency, to see their own choice, and to be excited by it and not afraid of it. Yeah, the thing that that Peter always says that is deep in my bones somewhere is confronting people with their own freedom. Yeah. And I asked him once, like, why are you always talking about freedom? He said, everything I'm doing is an extension of that. All the conversations I say, freedom or liberation or ownership or accountability or whatever. And it's all really the same thing. I'm just trying to have like, get people to, to think about it and in a little yeah. different way. Yeah. How, how do you think about that core concept of liberation? What does that mean for you? We're going to be talking about this tomorrow, I think, a little bit in our Rest as Resistance cohort, what the, the connection between liberation and justice and resistance. Liberation means so many things for me, but one of the things that it means is sort of the unabashed acceptance and going for things that give pleasure. I think that we are conditioned to think pleasure is bad and not seek pleasure for pleasure's sake. So there's the uncompromising, unapologetic pursuit of joy in doing the things that I find joyful. There's an aspect of growth and growthfulness and transformation. So always being a place of regeneration. There's always going to be taking in the world, but what are you giving? What are you growing? And so for me, liberation means constantly looking out for ways to to regenerate. Wherever there are people in a room, there's naturally going to be some kind of oppression happening, whether it's energetic, whether it's political, there's always going to be some form of imbalance. But for me, being in a liberative space means having the ability to navigate it in a joyful way, to be choiceful in how I choose to accept or reject oppression. Being in a space of liberation means being excited by the unknown means being excited about possibility. And I don't think we get to do that very often. Thanks for listening. You can find more about Megan, Courtney, Brad, and the conversations in the show notes. Also, the poem shared today was written by David White, who will be our guest for the next Abundant Community Conversation on September 15th. I will be speaking with David and Peter Block about the phenomenology of conversation. You can find the registration link in the show notes as well. This episode was hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor. And music is from Jeff Foreman.